Look at him. Who wants a chair? Is there a chair somewhere they can bring one up? on the floor it may be a bit uncomfortable so there is plenty of carpet space here if you'd like to move in <laughs> you want to hide in the back okay I understand <laughs> I understand I know we're awfully scary we are scary <laughs> a whole line of us there's a cushion here on a carpet which nobody wants because it's right in front of us <laughs> be brave <laughs> I've asked the teachers from the Theravada <coughs> tradition to start us with the chant that um, we do two chants in a kind of abbreviated form and without the melody and the melody is so beautiful so if we could start that way, that would be lovely. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa buddhang saranam gacchami dhammang saranam gacchami sanghang saranam gacchami Dutiyam 
just be on an angle so we can see each other as well as those who have gathered here. How about that? You come forward a little bit. This is really an open um, session for you to speak to something that has struck you over this weekend, something that you want to know more about, something that you've been holding as a burning question within you. So I'll be glad to <clears throat> uh, 
hear from you, really, and then that will also motivate us to say a few words, perhaps, maybe not. encourage you please not to um, become self-conscious or think that <clears throat> whatever you have to say is somehow not not showing your great uh, Buddha nature <laughs> coming through <laughs> straight admire it so please don't think that way so we have one question I do um, Bhante at the beginning of the forest bathing you said you went from Soto Zen to Theravada does a different meditative technique. So I was wondering if you and everyone else could kind of touch on or talk about the difference in meditative techniques in the two schools. Um, I could start on that. Um, so I've, I've actually practiced in many Buddhist traditions over the years. Um, and these days my practice is uh, it's still predominantly Theravada, but I, I incorporate a lot of elements of um, more the uh, Chan style practice, so Taiwanese style Zen rather than the Japanese style. Um, so I would say that the of the two main Zen methods, uh, so on the one hand you have uh, Shikantaza, uh, which in the Chinese tradition they call silent illumination. Uh, and on the other hand you have koan practice, which they call huato. Uh, of these two, the first one meshes perfectly with Theravada. In fact, the Buddha, uh, in the Pali Canon, in the Theravada Suttas, the Buddha speaks about it, um, not using that word, but he uses other terms which show he's clearly talking about the same thing. He talks about uh, concentration with no object, uh, or undirected concentration. So where the mind is in samadhi, but it's not fixated on any one particular thing. Um, koan practice, or uh, and huato practice, it's a... a a little bit harder to clearly slot it into the Theravada system, uh, but it would fit under the broad heading of insight meditation. Uh, it's a, just another way that one can start to develop that uh, penetrating wisdom, that, that direct, clear, knowing mind which sees reality as it is. Um, so, uh, as I see it, it's not that they're different systems, uh, but rather it's that the Zen traditions have specialized very strongly in these two particular methods. Um, whereas the Theravada tradition, it has a very broad palette. So any particular teacher will tend to focus on whatever works, works best for them. So there's some Theravada teachers, for example, who uh, what they're teaching is, is actually nearly identical to Zen practice, but they don't call it that. Uh, like there was, there's one senior monk who he was teaching at our, our center a little while back. And he was basically teaching Chikantaza. And at one point, one of the people asked, like, isn't this Zen? Are you teaching us Zen? And he's like, no, I'm just teaching you what my teacher taught me. And like to him, there was no difference. It's like, it's just Buddhism. Uh, like he's just teaching the path to enlightenment. Uh, so uh, again, I don't see it as that they're necessarily separate systems, but rather that the Zen school has, has specialized in two particular methods. Uh, and admittedly, of those two, again, koan practice, you won't find an exact correlate in most Theravada traditions. 
but you do sometimes find similar practices, the practice where you have a question that you ask yourself over and over again, a question which you can't really answer intellectually, but which it spurs the mind to look deeply at its experience. Uh, so simple questions like, uh, who am I? Uh, what is it that I think is myself? Um, questions like this you can ask yourself. And, and any Theravada teacher would just say, oh, you're just practicing insight meditation. They wouldn't see anything unusual about it. Yes, yeah, so I'd say that's the main difference. They are, they are straight ahead koans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, does that answer your question? It does, thank you. Yeah. And those of you who are sitting behind there, there is, I always like to have people come forward. There are two cushions on the nice soft carpet here, so please, if you uh, can't Gangil. see, come four cushions. Gangyo's not scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice for us to see you as well, so please, please do come forward. Coming forward is our practice, you know. <laughs> Don't be retiring. Imani, you want to go first? We'll come down this way. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, well, I always had a spiritual, I guess, need. Was uh, I grew up um, both Baptist and Baptist Pentecostal and Catholic. Uh, my parents had me baptized Catholic because at that time, that's the only way you could go to Catholic school, and they couldn't afford private school and didn't want me in public school. Um, and so, uh, even though my family wasn't Catholic, uh, my mornings were, um, you know, go to Catholic church, sit with my class, because we got graded for being there, and then come home, have breakfast, and go to Pentecostal church. And, wow. Um, and so, um, the Pentecostals were very afraid of Catholics because they had idols in the church. And the Catholics <laughs> were very afraid of the Pentecostals because they received the Spirit. <laughs> so I, I, I felt very comfortable in both settings, and so I automatically had this um, sort of um, spiritual code switching mm -hmm. that I was having. And, um, and I, in the Catholic Church, I really uh, would look up at the ceiling. I would get, you know, tapped by the nuns because I, I forgot to sit, stand, and kneel because I was so taken with all the activity of the angels on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. um, so I always had the spiritual need. And then, um, and then as I was a teenager, I started to see some discrepancies in the leaders. And I um, then started to feel like there was something hypocritical happening in terms of how people were treating each other. And so I left the church, but I did go on kind of a spiritual quest and dated a Muslim and um, uh, Egyptologist, and so I just went through a lot of spiritual journeys. Um, went to synagogue, went to different temples, things like that. So 
Um, then fast forward, my dad dies, and he had always talked about our Native ancestry, so I became interested in my Native American ancestry, mm -hmm. and uh, in a quest moving all around this country, ended up at a Sundance ceremony. Um, and then I um, was so moved by it that I pledged to be a Sundancer. So I spent 10 years learning Lakota medicine and mm -hmm. earth medicine spirituality. Um, and then uh, started along with that somewhere doing more yoga and then there was meditation and I said, oh, that meditation part, I like that part. <laughs> <laughs> and dived into wanting to know more about that. And then went to, through Goenkaji, um, Goenka, Essen Goenka Center, which I call boot camp meditation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of 10 days of no talking and no writing and no reading. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then just kept going deeper and deeper until I ended up taking more classes and training with two um, Theravadan teachers, Venerable Panawadi and Venerable Panadipa. And that's how um, I became a lay monastic. And, and that's how I'm sitting here. <laughs> I have, uh, <coughs> I'm Fatima, I'm originally from Brazil. Um, I have a similar, um, some of uh, experiences. When I grew up Catholic and when I was 13, I decided to leave the church because I also didn't like the, the treatment. I thought it was not the patriarchy and the, the other oppression that was happening there was too much for me. And I had, uh, but I always walked with a very uh, strong connection with something, with, mm. you know, something beyond. And, but I didn't know um, <clears throat> how to call it. And while I was in Brazil and growing up there, I was also exposed to a candomblé, which is a Yoruba tra tradition, the Orishas. And uh, Umbanda, Umbanda, it's, a, it's, it's, it's three religions together, Candomblé. Did you say Orisha? Orishas. Yeah, yeah. And, and we couldn't be part of it very much because as a Catholic, there was a lot of, uh, you know, don't go to those religions. <laughs> but there's no way it's so much part of the culture. And then, then Umbanda, which was... Um, syncretism of Catholicism, Native Brazilian, and uh, Candomblé, the Yoruba tradition. And then well, I was also exposed to Spiritismo, which is called uh, Spirituality, of Allan Kardec, this French man who moved, who created this Spiritism. It's more a, a channeling, and it is very strong in Brazil, this religion. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I came here uh, to this country, I stopped praying and practicing and I was going to, uh, I just became an activist and I started to acquire different identities, you know, immigrant, a woman of color, LGBT, um, person from third world country, all the, all the mm -hmm. identities that sometimes was given to me, I didn't even know <laughs> what that was, but anyway, um, so I spent uh, many years doing that and I went to school and I got my um, I got my BA in psychology and women's studies, and then um, you know I did a lot of uh, female spirituality, and went to many rituals and took a lot of classes and 
Then I also was invited to go to the Sundance community, the same, that's where I met Imani, in Arizona, and I also pledged and started and completed my pledge and stayed with them for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I, I was still um, trying to understand, I was getting a lot from different religions, but I was, uh, there was something that was, you know, their call that I didn't quite know what it was. And a friend of mine who went to Goenka also uh, told me um, about the center in um, North Fork, I think you went there, a beautiful center, and I actually liked it very much. And for many years, I, that was my sangha, my, my dharma hall. I went there um, and... and for the 10 days and for uh, did the Satipatthana course and I also did a, a Pali course, like two weeks of Pali. And um, then I met a, f- a friend of mine, um, Larry Yang. He's mm-hmm. one of the founder of the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. And Larry, we went to school together also. So when we finished school, he went to Buddhism. I went to Native American. 10 years later, we met. Mm-hmm. And he knew that I was going, you know, I was practicing Buddhism, and he invited me to be part of a, a, a course at Spirit Rock that is, uh, is called CDL, Community Dharma Leader, and also the other one is it's called DPP, Dedicated Practitioner Program. So I completed all these programs and and got to meet um, Venerable Panawati and... Panadipa, which is the same teachers as Imani who ordained us, and um, started to practice more and more, and and then I met this teacher, my mentor. Her name is Tanisara, um, Tanisara and Kitsaro. Uh, it's a couple. They are they are with Ajahn Chah for many, many, 12, 13 years, and then they uh, left Ajahn Chah because they fell in love and they decided to you know, drop the robe and marry and and come and create their sangha. So um, I started with them, and at the moment I am in another program with them, which is a Dharmapala program. It's a two years. And at the moment I'm studying more Mahayana, which I didn't know very much. And it's a lot of uh, cultivating Kuan Yin, and it's also, um, there is a lot of teaching, a lot of the doctrine, but there is a lot of, um, you know, uh, personal experience, uh, which is part of the, the Eightfold Path, and also social engagement. And Tanisara actually, when she left um, the monastery with Ajahn Chah, she had a very different treatment than, than her husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she was female. Mm-hmm. And so she has been working a lot on how to create more equality and have women be as equal. As, because, you know, the history is that when Mahapajapati wanted to be ordained, Buddha said no three times. And Ananda, his main um, disciple, was the one who asked him, you, you, don't, you don't think that women can have... Um, practice the Dharma, like, 
you know, and he said yes, so he ordained her. But uh, so Tanisa is questioning that because all the teaching came a hundred years after Buddha passed away. So what is what is it? You know, what is the truth? Mm-hmm. What is not? What what is what 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 do we know has some influence of political and social influence that changed the history a little bit? And so I'm. You know, I like what she's presenting, and we are also being very. We have we were trained to start to create sanghas, uh, multicultural sanghas, sanghas where there is dialogue and solidarity, and we can bring people of color, LGBT, and people from different paths to be together and have a visibility and participation and be part of the sanghas, and so that's the work that we do a lot, and. Um, and also, um, just to finish, um, they are very connected to the sacred feminine and you know the, the universal energy and the earth energy. So there is a lot of social in, engagement to try to change the you know climate crisis and the crisis that we are going through now. So I I do. Um, I bring everything together. Thank you for your question. So, uh, I was raised by very um, devout fundamentalist Protestant parents. Um, So going to church every Sunday as a family, um, family Bible study every evening, every day. uh, Which, does that surprise anyone? I, I have a similar story. Okay, who else, who else grew up with this kind of thing? Family Bible study every day? Pretty much no one. Okay. Um, yeah, so that was my childhood. W.S. Merwin. Yeah. 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 yeah, when I saw that part of the documentary, I was like, oh yeah, I know what that's like. Um, my parents were a little more permissive than his. I was allowed to climb trees, for example. Um, fell out of a tree when I was a kid and blacked out for three days. And I was still allowed to climb trees after that. So my parents were a little more open, except in the religious domain, where it was very tight fist. Uh, so then when I was 13, um, a friend just asked me very bluntly, he asked me, why do you believe in God? I stopped and I thought, and I was like, because my parents told me to. And it struck me what an incredibly stupid reason that was. <laughs> uh, so right there, all my faith evaporated, just like that. Uh, and so I went from being this, this very hardcore fundamentalist Protestant to being um, agnostic, uh, hedonistic, uh, and also extremely depressed. <laughs> um, so that was the characteristic of my teenage years, was desperately trying to pursue essential pleasure any way I could. Um, and I was quite open in terms of methods of, of sexual <laughs> uh, And... Uh, but also this agnostic mind. So this wasn't like the fatalistic agnosticism of I don't know and I can never know, but it was a, a seeking agnosticism. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but faith alone was not going to pull me through. That was made very clear to me when I was 13. So I was seeking for some way to touch absolute truth for myself. Like, not just something to believe in, but something I could feel through direct experience. 
Um, and I was also grappling with this, this crushing depression and, and sense of, of meaninglessness. So I, I did study many different religious and philosophical systems. And in many of them, I found like little scraps, little shreds of what tasted like truth, but none of them felt anywhere near close to complete. So I wasn't drawn into any of them. Uh, until when I was 17, I started reading about Buddhism. Uh, and I'd actually heard about Buddhism before then, but it was, uh, it was always presented in this very distorted form. So I, I remember I had a class in, in school which briefly had a section on Buddhism. And when they talked about Buddhism, I was like, this is so stupid. Why would anybody get involved in this? But then when I actually started studying real Buddhism, I realized that it was just misrepresented. Uh, and I run into this a lot. People who, they take a, a religion class in school and what they learn about Buddhism doesn't actually have anything to do with actual Buddhism. Um, so that was, that was definitely my experience. Uh, so when I started actually studying the teachings of Buddhism, uh, there was this instant feeling of, uh, of recognition, like there's something deeply true here. Uh, and not just something deeply true, but practical, pragmatic methods for coming to a personal realization of these truths, personal experience of these truths. So I started practicing meditation every day. Um, I started with Soto Zen, uh, so mostly following the Shunryu Suzuki uh, lineage, following their, their methods and, and teachings. Um, I, I dabbled in other things, but that was, that was what really drew me in the beginning. Uh, and it had such a profound impact on me that within a year, I had decided I wanted to be a monk. Um, it took me a little bit longer because the sensual side of my mind was still extremely strong. So I had the sensualist and the renunciate mm. engaged in a war for about three years. And the sensualist won out for the first three years. And then the renunciate finally won at the age of 20. Mm. Um, and this was shortly after my father died. So my father died when I was 20, and I moved to the monastery four months later. Um, so first I lived at Tassajara and Green Gulch for two years. Uh, and it was during that time that I realized that Zen practice is extremely profound and extremely difficult. It looks simple on the surface. It's not. <laughs> Advance warning. All of you who are getting into Zen. It looks simple. It's not. Yeah, just so you know. Um, <laughs> so they talk about sudden realization and the direct path and all that. And that's true in 30 years. <laughs> um, and you know what the saying is? Which one? 30 more years. <laughs> so after the 30 years, then there's another 30 years and, and so on. Um, so one thing I really appreciated when I started looking into Theravada was that there's a lot of tiny steps. So one way it's described is that um, Zen practice, like you're trying to get to the top of the mountain. So Zen practice is just to teleport directly from the bottom to the top. <laughs> um, whereas in the Theravada, you have all kinds of climbing tools. You've got ropes and hammers and spikes and ladders and, and all kinds of stuff to help you slowly get up the mountain. So that really appealed to me a lot. Um, another thing was that I became interested in the Vinaya. So the Vinaya is the ancient code of monastic rules, which um, these days it's not followed in most of Buddhism. So I was looking where in the Buddhist world do they really follow the ancient monastic code closely. 
Um, and the Thai force tradition is one of the few sectors of the Buddhist world where they really take these, these old rules seriously and really try to live by them. Um, so with this, I do want to point out, so a lot of people, when they start reading the monastic rules, they're just like, what is this dried up old nonsense? Like, why would I want to do this? But that was not my experience. When I started reading the Vinaya, I had this feeling of coming home. Um, like that feeling when you've been, you've been out traveling for several weeks or several months, and then you step back through the door of your home, and there's that feeling like, I'm here, this is where I belong, this is my home. That was my feeling when I started reading the Vinaya. This feeling like I'd done this countless times. Um, so for me, it was very familiar, and there was also a sense like there's, there's nothing unreasonable here, for the most part. <laughs> I have a few little quibbles here and there. But, but for the most part, I was like, this is doable. I can do this. Uh, so then I, I went to Abayagiri, which is in Northern California. Uh, it's a Theravada forest monastery. Um, the abbot's a Canadian monk who lived with Ajahn Shah for mm, 20 years or so, 25 years in Thailand. Um, so that's where I got my ordination and all of my, my basic monastic training. Uh, went around and lived at various other monasteries, uh, and uh, then about four years ago, I uh, came to New York City with and started a non-sectarian organization with Sister Soma. Um, so the focus on that was, it was arising from the recognition that there's been this gap in Western Buddhism between monastic communities and lay communities. So it's a very sharp divide, uh, which in the history of Buddhism is really weird. Like, you don't see this in Buddhist countries. In Buddhist countries, the monastics and the lay people are always, always together. They're always, there's always an, an interchange. There's always interaction between them. Um, but in the Western world, there's been this, this division. Uh, and uh, I saw this as being very unhealthy. It doesn't bode well for the future of Buddhism. Um, and it leads to a lot of people, they don't, they don't really understand the Dharma. Uh, because they, they don't have much contact with people who are living it deeply. Um, and also a lot of people don't understand what monastics are or why monasticism is important. When actually monasticism has been at the heart of Buddhism since the very beginning. So you cannot have Buddhism without monastics. It dies very quickly. It doesn't work. Uh, so I, I'd always had this, this uh, idea to try to do something about this. And Sister Soma... Um, had similar aspirations. Um, so naturally, we started this organization. Uh, and as a non-sectarian organization, uh, bringing teachers of all different traditions, and that started to really open my view again uh, and seeing the uh, interconnection between all the different schools of Buddhism. Uh, so seeing them, uh, again, not as, not as separate traditions, but rather as uh, branches of one tree. It's like there's, there's Buddhism, uh, and it all has the same, same core, the same trunk. Four Noble Truths, Noble Eightfold Path, three universal characteristics, the same basic teachings in every tradition. Uh, so then these, these different branches, they might look different, but they're all rooted in exactly the same principles. And they're all grounded in the same quest for awakening. Um, so in the last few years, uh, so again, my, my original ordination was in Theravada, and I still keep that, and that's still my primary method. Uh, but since then, I've also received ordination in uh, both in the Soto Zen tradition uh, and also in um, one of the branches of uh, Mahayana, 
Um, so the, actually the Vinaya tradition uh, in Taiwan. Um, so these days my practice is much more, uh, again, it, it includes both Theravada and Mahayana. Um, so that's where I am today. Long story long, as Sister Soma likes to say. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you would like to say also about your Sister Soma. <laughs> Um, thank you for inviting me, uh, Roshi. So, um, well, I was born in Italy, um, so the land of the Pope, um, but my parents <laughs> were in particularly religious, so I got baptized just because everybody gets baptized um, as you're born. Not many, <laughs> not much decision power there. Um, but ironically, um, actually, I was the only faithful um, kid that my parents had, so nobody in my house went to church, not even on Christmas Day, uh, but I, I was really devoted, um, like a devout Catholic, so I would go to church by myself, um, I would sing to God by myself in the room, really awkward child, my parents were like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where um, this one came out. Um, then at the age of 10, my dad, uh, sorry, my grandfather died. Um, and similarly to Bante, I kind of lost faith. Um, it was just a little, I couldn't find a rational reason, um, for, for what I was experiencing or for, through the way that I was taught Christianity. Um, so I couldn't, I lost faith in Catholicism or in Christianity, but, um, I wasn't opposed to it. I just didn't know what to do afterwards. So um, I kind of put, I started reading a lot of things about um, philosophy, anything from atheism to Buddhism to different um, perspectives of, of how the world, um, like all the different possible answers to the big questions. Um, but nothing really convinced me, so um, I defined myself as agnostic and just decided to put pretty much spirituality in a box and focus on something else. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I got into a completely different route, so I started working in fashion, um, in the art world, and lots of different creative... Um, it was interesting watching the, the documentary last night because there were a lot of things that... Um, he was saying that uh, reminded me of um, of my previous life within this life. <laughs> um, so similarly, actually, uh, to him, um, I had decided to a certain point to take a sort of vow of poverty in the way that <laughs> I was doing a bunch of different art um, indie projects um, in my quest for finding the best way of living, the most fulfilling life, something that made me really happy. And so I just decided that I kind of started looking at all the people that I respected in the 20th century and they were all broke. So I was like, okay, (laughs) there's that. I'm not going to get a mortgage, not going to get a family, not going to get all those things. Um, And I pursued, I was very ambitious in terms of being madly in love, being, finding the job that I really wanted to do. Um, not in terms of money, but in a lot of different um, other ways. And I got actually pretty much that I kind of set my mind um, to achieve. 
but it was always um, satisfying for a period of time and then I would get back into um, it was not always it was never a hundred percent fulfilling um, so then once I finished like the nth millionth project um, I was a little bit lost and I was kind of like okay maybe I should just go and work for an advertising agency in Manhattan and <laughs> and stop um, and just kind of like let go of all my pursuits um, so while I was in that stage actually I found um, I had gone to a, a Buddhist monastery actually in all my different pursuits a couple of years before uh, in the tradition that Bhante was ordained in in the Thai forest tradition in Italy um, which was a cute experience, but I hadn't learned to meditate or anything. So then after the the nth millionth project, um, I was like, oh, I would really like to go back to that monastery. It was really peaceful, um, but it was too far away because I was in New York. So I found Bhavana Society, which is a great uh, monastery. Back then, I did not know that there were different traditions of Buddhism. I thought that Theravada just meant forest. So I <laughs> wanted to go to a forest monastery. <laughs> And the only forest monastery that I could find, as in Theravada, <laughs> um, was in West Virginia. Uh, so it took me a while to get there, but eventually I got there. Um, and they had a retreat, like a seven-day silent retreat. Um, and I was kind of like, okay, well, they had two spots for women available. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll sign up for this. Um, bear in mind that I hadn't really meditated or did not know how to do anything, so I just went from 0% to 100% overnight. A Zen student. No climbing apparatus. No sudden <laughs> instant illumination. Um, yeah, it was actually quite amusing because like a lot of my peers back then were asking me like, are you into meditation practice? Like that you're going to this retreat? And I was like, no, are you Buddhist? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> are you like, do you have some kind of like affinity to this? I'm like, no, I'm, why are you going? And I was like, well, why not? I mean, should kind of be open to things. Um, so I went there. And actually, the first three days, it was hilarious because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, so I was pacing out all the time. I was just sitting. <laughs> there were very few instructions given um, at the monastery where actually Bante was staying at the time. And then the third day, he was one of the teachers there at that monastery. So the third day, he appears. He gives a Dharma talk, um, some meditation instructions. And finally, I understood what I was supposed to do. So... That was great. So the next four days um, really made an impact in my mind. Because um, for the first time, I feel like right up to then, I had a bit of a sort of idea of my suffering, but not really any kind of way out. Um, and after that retreat, I had the first glimpse of the power of this practice, which is in fact a practice, something that you actually have to do experientially aside from reading about it. Um, so I came out and I was like, wow, I really can do something about, um, yeah, about, you know, the dissatisfaction that I'm experiencing. And on top of that, now I finally understand why I was dissatisfied to begin with, because nothing is inherently satisfying to begin with. <laughs> so that, um, 
since I'm a very much 0% to 100%, uh, three months later, <laughs> Bante Sudazu and I opened, um, <laughs> launched Buddhist Insights. So I quit everything that I was doing and um, we started this organization that connects people in New York City with Buddhist monastics. The reason also we did that was because I entered unusually from the monastic path rather than from the lay secular centers. I actually, from the monastic path, I started also exploring, trying to find places for practice in New York. And it was very difficult. Um, it was very different, more than difficult. It was very different to, from what I had learned in monastic settings. Um, so, I was looking for monastics in New York and I could find pretty much anything in New York. I had been in New York for 10 years. I've been in New York for 10 years and I can find like the little, you know, specialty cheese that <laughs> is made in the little town of like my grandmother. And I was like, okay, seriously, I can find everything, but I cannot find a monastic that will teach me on a regular basis. Um, like in an easier, in an easy sort of accessible way. So it seemed to me, so I was actually commuting all the way to Trangyan Monastery in Carmel, New York to um, listen to Biko Bodhi, um, uh, who is one of the senior t uh, monastics in the Travada tradition who has translated the entire Pali Canon. But it was like a four hour commute each way. It was really dedicated, <laughs> but also it was not exactly <laughs> around the corner. Um, so Bhante Sudazu and I started talking about it and decided to launch the organization. And that entailed, um, since we, in the Theravada tradition, the monastic Theravada tradition anyway, um, everything is offered without a price tag, so it's part of uh, the practice to um, offer everything on generosity and for people to generously give uh, whatever they want on a free will basis it basically there was in the budget which was zero there was um no budget for my stipend <laughs> so it was either we run the ran the organization or we paid um someone to run the organization so yeah so for basically two three years i lived a semi-monastic life so not having a wage not um doing anything, um, I mean, doing everything for the organization, but not receiving any financial compensation. And so then after three years, I just kind of had to look at my situation and go like, well, what do I want to do now? <laughs> um, do I actually want to pursue this path or do I want to do something else? So it wasn't really a decision. It was more like a no brainer. I looked back and I was like, well, I don't want to go back to my previous life within this life or in that mind. I'm significantly happier. This practice is so powerful. Um, and also I had been at that point taking, taking a lot of different vows that you take as a lay practitioner in the Theravada tradition, at least. And I really saw the power of taking vows of how, they create lots of opportunities for, for you to look at your mind um, and learn things about your mind um, that otherwise I, would not, I wouldn't have been able to see. 
So I just wanted to take more vows. <laughs> like, okay, give me more, give me more. Um, so yeah, so I decided to go forth and uh, Venerable Panyavati, who is um, um, where they got their lay um, ordination. Uh, she's my preceptor. She's um, the only African-American bikuni actually in the Travada tradition. She has a center in North Carolina. So she's my preceptor. I went forth um, almost a year ago, a couple of weeks, it will be a year. Mm. And I'm so happy. Actually, I adjusted immediately. It was, it took a, a second maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it's, um, I don't know why I waited so long actually. <laughs> Bad karma. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's long story, ultra long. <laughs> this question you know and I was thinking when you asked it are you ready for an hour's worth <laughs> I'd like to suggest that everyone stand up and touch the ceiling breathing in deeply to each other. Bow. If you'd like, you can remain standing where you can sit. Break for bathroom, which is in the corner there, to the left of the screen. Unless you want to go down to the second floor. Just have a couple minutes. Other bathrooms on the second floor if you don't want to wait here. Where are you living now? Still in the center. Yeah, we're opening a dual gender monastery. Wow. <laughs> That's challenging. Um, actually, you gave us a lot of inspiration since you basically have a dual gender monastery. Um, so in the Theravada tradition, historically, well, as um, Fatima was mentioning, there's been a bit of um, gender segregation. Um, well, the Bikuni order died out. Um, depending on the different countries uh, around a thousand years ago or 500 years ago, etc. And uh, now they brought it back by or ordaining actually women in the Mahayana tradition. Because um, the Buddha never invented the Mahayana tradition, Adriana tradition, the Theravada tradition. Um, he just invented, well invented, just ordained people as Buddhist monastics. So there's really like no um, kind of difference in terms of um, of ordination but people are obviously unenlightened beings are very attached to their traditions so it's been a little bit um, difficult to introduce women or female ordination in certain countries um, luckily I didn't have to do that work I um, 
I'm a lot more fortunate than a lot of uh, female monastics who have come before my before me. Uh, Venerable Panyabati being one of the pioneers, actually, of, of female ordination. So the 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 monastics are pretty segregated, and they follow a standard that is um, generally. Mm, according to the gender <laughs> uh, costumes of either ancient India of 2,500 years ago or the different Asian cultures, um, which weren't no different than, I mean, the Western sort of norms up until like 50 years ago. Um, but Bhante Sudazo and I think that um, it's, that is not particularly relevant these days. And actually here, for example, at this monastery where there is no such such pressure. Um, actually, I think it's a lot more. The Zen tradition, I, I have to see it. I have to say, the Japanese Zen tradition is very inspiring to me in that way, uh, where all of this is just not a problem. Um, so it's only a problem if you make it into a problem. So that's a little bit our perspective. So we decided to start a dual gender monastery for people who are looking for that. <laughs> so we create that option. It's actually been quite a problem. <laughs> what was that? Maybe we should talk to you. They understand who said it. One thing that I, I just want to say that um, there is this uh, Sukhyajita conferences of women and mm -hmm. Buddhism that happens every other year. And they, um, many of the women wrote a lot of books and they were saying that in some countries in Asia when the women wanted to be ordained, they had a lot of pressure because the, the, the monastic, the male monastic and the society wanted them to uh, be monastic but just do social services. Mm -hmm. And then the Western feminists and some other people wanted them to learn and to go and teach. But they, so in that conferences in those groups, they said, we just want to practice. They didn't want to do anything, but there was so much pressure. They just want to be monastic and practice. So there are different uh, discussions about that. And so there are more people uh, practicing, more women practicing than it has been in the past. And one place that I think is worth bringing forward for discussion is Taiwan. Yeah. So in Taiwan, there's about six times as many bhikshunis, so female monastics, as bhikshus, the male monastics. Um, and the vast majority of the Buddhist monasteries and temples in Taiwan are run by female monastics. Um, so, just pointing that out, it's not universal in the Buddhist world that <coughs> the, the men outnumber the women. Um, so yes. I don't know if you want to get back to your question and hear from me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but it is another side issue. I think we may not know about some of the very difficult challenges we've had in the Zen world, particularly in this country, because we have both genders practicing together. Um, maybe I think I know what you're referring to, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a different issue. I wouldn't say it's necessarily related to gender. Also, mm. depends on the age range, because not necessarily people are attracted to the same 
gender right. at first. Exactly. So like that's, for example, the, cur- the majority of people that come to Buddhist Insights, the organization Bhante and I have, are between the age of 20 to 40. And everybody, I would say, is like pretty trisexual um, in that age <laughs> range. So <laughs> not necessarily if you... The gender segregation doesn't always solve mm-hmm. any problems. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's yeah. true. Mm. But in the past, it has been uh, certainly something we've had to grapple with. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, we've been told by a number of people in the Japanese Zen tradition in Japan that the way they've dealt with this situation is to keep women away. Mm-hmm. Oh, the women are the problem. Women are always, you know, <laughs> not for them, we'd be fine. No. <laughs> anyway, so it's a complicated story, mm-hmm. history, um, which we can spend another few hours on, but we won't. <laughs> another time. Yeah, so um, responding from my own uh, past to your question, how I got on this path, and some of you know a lot, so excuse me if you know I'm repeating things you already know, but in a word, suffering. Um, I understood what the Buddha meant. Later I found out what he taught as the uh, Four Noble Truths, but I understood personally very well without knowing that there was such a teaching. Um, when I was a year, well, yeah, about a year and a half old, my father was killed in World War II, and the Holocaust was going on, and many of our relatives were uh, murdered, and we lived through this period of time that my first four years in Brooklyn were shrouded with uh, this awareness that no one would speak about. Hmm. It was just this you could feel it, very, very dark and thick. And I wanted to know, what is this? What is the significance of my life in the midst of this? My first very close friend when I was three and four, before we moved from Brooklyn, was African-American. And... We didn't know anything about race, you know. We were just in love with each other, (coughs) wanted to be together all the time. And one day we were playing and a a dime fell from my tricycle over the fence and there were some elderly people sunning themselves in this apartment building where my friend's father was the super, superintendent. And so she jumped over the fence to get the dime and Uh, an old man started shouting, get that, using the N-word, get that out of here. And we both burst into tears. I'd never heard that word. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that it was bad. And so there were these moments of um, of intense pain that I, I couldn't quite sort out or understand, but there was so much of it. And I remember asking my grandmother, who kept a kosher household and would, you know, um, 
be filled with consternation if I used the wrong knife after it was used for chicken and I put it in the butter. It was like the end of the world had come. She had to run out in the backyard and bury it. <laughs> so one day I asked her, Grandma, do you believe in God? And she looked at me and she said, I just like the candles. <laughs> but I wanted to know. And I, I knew that there's, there had to be some way of living one's life that would meet this suffering and that would under, somehow comprehend and, and be able to do something about it. Well, then it got worse. My mother remarried. She married somebody who was an artist, a very interesting guy. He was 13 years older. She looked up to him, and he turned out to be what we would now say bipolar. He was very violent. And we moved to New Mexico, and we then had to leave there because of certain things. And then we moved to New Jersey in the country, and he lost his job because he threw a kid down two flights of stairs. And... You know, there were just, I, there were, there were never moments where I could trust that I would be okay. Never. And so this continuing feeling of intense confusion, pain, anger, um, led me to my first meditation retreat under a tree without knowing that's what I was doing. But sitting down and feeling that tree nature and then feeling the breeze through the tree and feeling my little bubble of, of misery just dispersing. Mm -hmm. And I had this experience at the age of maybe, I don't know, seven or eight, that changed everything. And... On the outside, nothing changed. It was just horrible. And I would still get very angry and very upset and, you know, crying all the time. And school was my saving grace. I could get on that school bus, get away from the house. And I didn't understand why people said they didn't like school. <laughs> <laughs> and I developed a very close friendship with uh, another girl in my class in... Um, maybe first year of high school. And um, we stayed up all night. She would come to my house. She would kind of put blinders on and ignore my stepfather's tantrums. And we would, we would stay up all night and talk. And we would talk about all the things that you all have talked about. You know, what is this? What, what is life for? Why are we, why are we here? And her boyfriend, I really liked him a lot, but I respected that they had a relationship, so okay. <laughs> her boyfriend was into Zen. In eighth grade, we had a, a book on world cultures, and that's when I found out that there was a name for what I was doing, whether it was under a tree or in my room or whatever it was. I was continuing to meditate, and I read this passage in the book, and this big light bulb went on. Oh, it has a name. Great. I'm going to keep doing this. And eventually I'll go to Japan. And 
So her boyfriend also was very interested in Zen. And then we had to move away. My parents got another place closer to Manhattan. And um, junior year, she called me and she, at high school, and she said her boyfriend had shot himself. And he had lift, left a note saying uh, something referring to his misunderstanding of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And it had to do with no, uh, you know, the great no. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a shock. And then I knew I wanted to study Buddhism. And in 1959, 60, 61, there was very little around in any of the colleges I was interested in going to. So um, I thought maybe Radcliffe, because they taught Sanskrit. And thank God I didn't get in. <laughs> and I went instead to Vassar. And the library there had books by D.T. Suzuki, and that's when I was first able to start studying Buddhism, and Zen in particular. And I found Zen Flesh, Zen Bones in the college bookstore, and uh, just kept going on my path, you know, really throughout the years of college when I was um, a philosophy major, uh, and creative, rights, creative writing major, and philosophy minor. In philosophy, the what I wanted most was existentialism because it came as close to Buddhist understanding as you could get in the West. But there was a, a place where it stopped. You know, it stopped where the great philosophers said, um, well, take Heidegger, for example, being time. Did Heidegger know Dogen? <laughs> so there was that next leap that I had to make to uh, to really comprehend what was the next step that the existentialism uh, uh, philosophers weren't getting. But anyway, so I went through those four years feeling very happy, very grateful to be there and to be in this beautiful place with lots of trees that one could sit under. And... Um, more and more this feeling of what I need to do is follow this path, but I don't know where it is or how it is, and I was painting a lot. I was always in the art studios, writing short stories and painting, and after Vassar I went to the New York Studio School and continued painting, and then I met my first husband, and we were spending a lot of time at uh, Columbia University where he was getting his uh, graduate school degrees and I was reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead and he was um, writing a book on Plato and that was kind of you know our life coming together and we decided to get married and I said you think we could have a Zen ceremony and here's this guy you know Western philosophy very straight ahead okay uh, but we were in love so he said okay so we looked under Z in the phone book. <laughs> Back then you could do that. And now you go on Google, I guess, you find a lot of Zen centers. But in that era, there were not a lot. 
And we found the Zen Studies Society, which was on the west uh, side of New York City. And we uh, knocked on the door, and <laughs> this young monk came to the door. And I have to explain what we looked like. Um, my first husband was 6'4 and had a huge afro. <laughs> he was Native American mixed with uh, Norwegian. But anyway, his hair was like that. And I was wearing a mini skirt. It came to about here. My hair was that long. <laughs> so there we were at, at uh, you know, at the Zendo. And the young monk takes a look at us and says, "Well, we'd like to get married." <laughs> and he said, mm. <laughs> "Come in, and we'll have some tea." <laughs> And we had a cup of tea and talked a little bit, and I guess it was going to be okay. So we had our wedding, and it was performed by someone who, one of his teachers, who happened to be in New York City then, Hakuna Yasutani Roshi. And um, he was this little old man, he didn't have a word of English, and the young monk didn't have that many words of English, and we had all of our friends around us in a big circle, we had no parents, nothing from family, because, a long story, anyway. <laughs> um, I told them all beforehand, and you can't get stoned before it is. A Buddhist temple. <laughs> I want you to be there straight. <laughs> and so there they were, doing their best. And <laughs> this wonderful ceremony that no one understood, because um, it was in Japanese and Japanese English, and, and um, it was great. <laughs> And so that, after that, I said, I really want to go back and, and practice at this place. And this was 1967. And we did. And we, and we would go and listen to Yasutani Roshi's lectures, which would be two or three hours long, translated by this young monk who didn't have a very good grasp of English. So it was really difficult, continuing along the lines of suffering. <laughs> oh, my God painful. And then um, we went to France. I had a desire to paint in the south of France, so Lou got a Fulbright to finish his doctorate. And, you know, basically just to take me to France, he got this Fulbright. That was the kind of guy he was. He was very bright. And we had this wonderful year, and we came back, and um, I happened to open the the New York Times Sunday architecture section, and there was this front page story on the Zen Study Society opening in an old carriage house in New York City, and got some sort of architectural, you know, award for this beautiful re reuse of the space. And I said, we have to go back. Here I am. <laughs> it's just going back again and again and again, you know, sitting, practicing, doing all the ways that are so uh, traditionally clear and beautiful as they are presented and being the beneficiary of so much amazing teaching, not only that young monk who became Edo Roshi, his teachers, Yastani Roshi and Soen, Soen Nakagawa Roshi, who came 
frequently to this country, finding this place, building this building, doing all kinds of amazing... Um, those were the pioneering years, you know, the early 70s. And everything was happening on the West Coast, throughout um, the East. Many, many centers were being built. All these teachers were coming over from Japan and Korea and India. And it was a very exciting time, a feeling of we're at the start of things. We're changing the culture not in some egocentric way, but just this feeling of here we all are doing this impossible thing. You know, what is it? We're, what is it that we're doing really? Well, we don't really know. I wanted to plant corn. Ada Roshi said, the season won't be long enough. I said, we're going to plant corn. Okay, we planted corn. We never ate it. <laughs> but, you know, things like that, where everybody was sort of... Yeah, on the same level, because the teachers didn't know what we were all about, and we had no clue what they were all about, but we all loved the Dharma. And that was so clear. The Dharma, what was it? Nobody could put it into words. It was just transmitted soundlessly, silently, without words. You could feel, just sit down and shut up and the incredible effect that that had on all of our lives. I mean, I'm talking about an era in America where um, we thought what we needed to do was, first of all, demonstrate, as you saw in the film last night. Um, a lot of my friends were in... Uh, all, I was in SDS. A lot of my friends were even more radical, the weathermen. Um, and what else could we do? We could have be-ins, you know, so everybody would get high and go to Central Park, and there would be great music, and there were so many influences that we all had come through. Uh, we were all working for the liberation movement, so feminism, gay liberation, uh, anti-war movement, we were very involved. And so we, we didn't look at Buddhism as a way out, but really to, to find our way into what mattered and, and becoming aware of racism and becoming aware of all the, the ways in which this beautiful country had evolved and become powerful on the backs of others. You know, the stolen land, all this was coming to light. Never had seen it in any of our textbooks. But we were starting to realize it and form alliances and feel that, that we could really be agents of change. But that first, first and foremost, that, had, that change had to come from within. And that it wasn't enough to experience oneness. It wasn't enough to find some deep peace within, that we had to hold each other and, and carry this together and make a difference. And that's what my life has been dedicated to. So I'm thrilled to have all of you here and to feel the intense and earnest sense that you all come with to this weekend. Thank you so much.
know after all of us talking, talking, talking. When can we leave? Eleven fifteen. Well, we if you'd like to if anyone else would like to say something or ask anything, I think we're willing to spend a little more time. Can you, um, I, I, Neil, if you maybe you talk a little bit more about the chanting? There seems to be more chanting happening here than in other Buddhist traditions that I've been to. Mm. What's it for? <laughs> it's such an interesting question that's not easy to answer, really. Uh, chanting, of course, if you translate some of what we chant, like the Heart Sutra, it's the teaching, the wisdom teaching is very clearly expressed, but intellectually you don't get it. It takes a long time for some passage in a translated sutra to really penetrate your heart. And when it does, it's as though you've just put those words out there. Similarly, similar saying in, in the film last night. That poem, when you when you heard that poem and you realized this woman was speaking, oh, I wrote that. This was so deeply taken in, uh, not as something outside, but something from within. And that happens when we repeat again and again. Something changes. Now, a lot of the chanting is either in Pali or... Sino-Japanese. Sino-Japanese is or Komblong, uh, so Sanskrit taking through China, then through Japan. It makes no sense whatsoever, but we chant it anyway. And the fact that it makes no sense is very important because it brings us into um, a vocalization of what cannot be rationally explained. And the more we do that, the whole being is thrown into this no-knowing offering sacred mind. The mind with a capital M. You don't necessarily feel that way when you're doing it for the first few times. You just like, why are we, you know, what does this mean? I don't like to chant something if I don't know what it means. Okay, it's in English. Uh, did that help? No. <laughs> <laughs> And so you have to, you're forced to get beyond that, uh, that desire to have that ratiocentric way of being. And, uh, anything that we can do to um, question the mental authority that we all walk around with, the better. Because we have to question every assumption, right? When we're doing meditation, that's what it's about. You mentioned questioning in, in this path, and there, it's not any different. We might call it a koan, but the real question is, why do I believe this? Who did that brainwashing? What kind of cultural brainwashing are we all sitting here with? And that's, of course, the root of prejudice, the root of divisiveness, the root of why we think, you know, we matter and the other little beings out there don't. There are so many um, assumptions that we walk around with, and that's 
Your question speaks to that. Why do we chant? Then we can say we're opening to all beings. Why do the birds sing? Why do the insects hum? Why do the flowers speak in flower language? Have you learned tree language yet? So that's what chanting brings us into. I'd like to add a couple of things to that. So my comments are a little bit less mystical. <laughs> so I really appreciate what you just said, by the way. That was absolutely beautiful. Um, first off, if you think this is a lot of chanting, um, you clearly haven't been to very many Buddhist centers, and in particular, I recommend spending some time at Pure Land Monasteries, <laughs> where you will chant 12 mm. hours a day, and you will love it. You will love it so much. At least I do. I hope you do as well. Uh, so... Uh, why the chant? So first off, everything Shinge Roshi said, but also on a very basic level, uh, it promotes communal harmony. Uh, there was an incident that happened a few years ago where uh, two or three monks went off to start a small hermitage together, and they were fighting all the time. They were always having disagreements and squabbles. And so they... sound Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds human. <laughs> so they, they called their teacher and they said, we don't know what to do about this, we're just fighting all the time. And the teacher said, are you chanting every day? And the monks were like, well, admittedly, no. And, then the, and the teacher said, you need to do group chanting every single day. And the monks started doing the group chanting together again, and within a matter of weeks, uh, they were friends again. So there's something about taking an extended period of time where you just focus on harmonizing with each other. Uh, so one major element of this, so one of the very first chanting instructions I ever got was chant with your ears, not with your mouth. Okay. So uh, uh, another version of this I heard was that chanting is 90% listening. Right. So you're, you're dropping your ideas about how you think the chanting should sound. And you're listening to what everybody else thinks the chanting should sound like. And you try to match that. Um, so it's also a practice of letting go of self-attachment. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I know the right way to do this chant. Everybody else should follow me. Well, that actually works if you're the chant leader. So usually there's one person who's the chant leader and you are actually supposed to follow them. <laughs> um, but even then, it's, it's still this practice of listening uh, and dropping your, your own ideas. So it promotes communal harmony. Uh, another element is this, this attitude of devotion. Um, and some of that is engendered by the chanting. Uh, and sometimes it's more how as time goes by and you get deeper and deeper into the practice, you start to get this, this very deep feeling of admiration and respect and gratitude and love uh, for the Buddha. Uh, and it comes out in the chanting. So in the beginning you're like, Budang Saranangachami, Dhamang Saranangachami. Holy hell is this over here? But then, then after a few years, like your heart is, and you're just like, Budang Saranangachami, I love you so much. Like, it just comes out naturally. Um, and some of that, it comes from the chanting. Like you, you fake devotion for a while, and then you actually start to feel it. So chanting is it's a really important element of Buddhist practice. It's not to be set aside. One more thing I'll say, and then I'll stop. 
Um, it also greatly aids samadhi. Uh, so I had this experience. Uh, I so I just recently, a few weeks ago, I did my first Pure Land retreat. So seven days where you spend almost all your time just chanting the Buddha's name, which might sound dumb, but it's great. Trust me, it's great. <laughs> Try it out. What language? Um, Chinese. This is in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So Amitofo. Amitofo. And, and they have several different ways they do it. Some are slow and some are fast and different ways of syncing it with walking and bowing and all that. But then periodically throughout the day, you would do short periods of silent sitting meditation. And what I noticed was that, uh, so you chant Amitabha's name, you chant the Buddha's name for a couple hours, and then you do sitting meditation, and the mind is incredibly silent, mm-hmm. bright, mm-hmm. alert, and joyful. Mm-hmm. So it does something to the mind. Uh, again, it's, it's not something that you can, you can logically touch, but it's something that you feel all through your being. Uh, so give chanting a chance. It really does work. I hated it in the beginning, by the way, <laughs> just to clear that up. But give it time. Yeah. This is, um, uh, you heard papers fumbling. We were looking for this page that was given Ooh. to us by our teacher called The Benefits of Chanting. Okay. And um, the first one, um, I just wanted, I was going to just pass it around for us all to read together, but the very first one, that it says is honoring that which is worthy of honor, which comes from, it says this is the highest blessing. And, um, and it's like also, um, what, do you, what do you spend time, what do you spend your time with? Mm-hmm. And it says the first stanza of the Mangala Sutta is, what do you befriend and hang out with? Mm-hmm. Um, so do you want to and there is also, um, because we do a lot of chanting in this course that I, right now and <clears throat> chanting also the way it was explained and I have experienced that chanting also help us to go back to what was taught before mm. which kind of religion we were before mm. and there is some kind of healing mm. and um, when you chant you know you might start to remember some of chants that you liked in mm-hmm. the religion that you didn't like that's true and so what happened to me is that I, um, I'm having a hard time to connect with uh, the great compassion uh, <laughs> chant <laughs> in, in Chinese. Um, it's beautiful when everybody's it's doing it, but we are supposed to do it every day, you know, for the next two years, at least twice a day. And I go home and I, I do it, but it, it doesn't... It doesn't I don't know, something does not touch. So the other day I was at home practicing and, and I was chanting, chanting and chanting and, and, and then I miss my mother a lot and my mother is bedridden. She's in a very difficult situation right now. She needs 24 hours care and I keep going there back and forth. And um, I, she doesn't talk, but sometimes I call and they put FaceTime, you know, we use the FaceTime and I say, Mom, Mom, and I call her name and tell her things. And so this day, specific day, I, <clears throat> I miss that I could not hear her voice. And, and I have this very deep, deep ache, you know. And then I said, okay, I'm going to chant. I'm going to chant the great, great compassion chant. And there I was like chanting and chanting. It didn't go. And it did 
I said, I want to talk to my mom's spirit right now, whatever she is. It didn't go through. So I um, tried and tried, and then, you know, and I know that I was evoking Kuan Yin, and then something clicked. I said, oh, the patron of Brazil, it's a lady of uh, Aparecida, Nossa Senhora Aparecida. And I always liked this story, and I like her in some of the chants. And so I said, you know, it was like, seemed like the chant took me to that space. Mm. And then I said, but I didn't like some of the chants that I learned. So I went to YouTube, and I, I found this very beautiful chant okay. that someone did recently, uh-huh. and it integrated the history of her, but also um, some other things that are happening right now. And it was a very beautiful prayer and chant. So I just sat, and I, I said it out loud in Portuguese, and I just oh. cried, cried, and cried, and something just opened up. It's like very, mm-hmm. you know, and then I said, oh, there are so many things that I liked. You know, I like my mother's religion too. And, and then I felt like I had a contact with her. And my spirit talked mm-hmm. to my mom in that, yeah. that way. And I felt, when I looked at it and I told my teachers, and they said, Kuanin does that. <laughs> <laughs> the chant, the great compassion does that. So there are different ways that you can chant. And, you know, it, it helps you to touch something much deeper and you can go back to some places that you have to, you know, embrace and uh, heal and love and appreciate. I think when you spoke about that, it was reminding me of this past week um, in the Jewish calendar, the High Holy Days, um, end with Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, also understood as Day of Atonement. And um, I really love this holiday. Most people are like, oh, I have to fast. I have to go and listen to all those prayers. It can't be open soon. Very impatient, really. And But once you get into it, it, you just let it wash over you. But for me, it's my favorite holiday because, you know, it, re- it reflects everything that started me on my path, which is, as I said, um, this teaching of dukkha and, and how to enter into it and expand and open. And this is uh, what happened, particularly this time with Yom Kippur, I entered that space, that sanctuary, and all the beauty of Judaism just mm-hmm. poured through me. As I said, I was not given that when I was a child. My parents did not want it. And yet I would walk around like this. What? What are you doing? They were like, horrible, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, came through her that we were rejecting. Anyway being there and uh, hearing the melodies, the ancient melodies, there's something about, not only about chanting, Buddhist chanting, but what it can connect you to. Mm -hmm. And so the same thing happened to me, that the ancient melodies were nothing divided from or 
or in any way separate from the um, the experiences I've had chanting in Kamzeo Namubatiyo Bhutsurinyo, this same bodhisattva of compassion. Mm-hmm. And I think this happens to us when we get older. It may not be for everyone. It certainly happened to Leonard Cohen. Mm-hmm. After all those years with Joshi Sasaki Roshi, he came home to Judaism. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really feeling um, a, a great resonance there for myself at this age. I'll be 76, or I was just 76. Oh, God, I'll be 77. <laughs> you know, that, that, that all of it comes together, that it's not, well, I stopped doing this in order to do that, but that it's all part of the same whole. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the same uh, chant, Amitabha, it's the same that we do, but mm. um, there is this chant that we do that... Uh, you start slow, but then you, you just want to dance, you know? Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I don't know if I'm with Hare Krishna or I'm <laughs> <laughs> And when we graduated with um, Panawari, we had to have a procession uh, to go to the, you know, to the altar. And, and then we went and we were, oh, Amitabhaya, Buddhaya. So when we were getting closer, oh, and we were like everybody was dancing because we were very happy and the body felt that and it's like the the kazion Mm. that you get Mm. faster and faster and faster and all the emotions come and very beautiful Amitabha chanting try it out you'll love it That's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> so anyone want to make any general remarks um, about your experience here? I think a, a quick one as somebody who's practiced here that, that wasn't mentioned because it's even more material realm, <laughs> like it's just moving on the spectrum from mystic to very much dualistic in here is after doing that daily for a year or two, I could blow a birthday candle out from across the room. <laughs> Just the control of your diaphragm so that when, you know, I came from uh, kinesiology to here, so it's like a body practice as well. When you sit down to do zazen or any form of meditation, um, the conditioning mm-hmm. of the, the floor of what moves down when you breathe, was so much more in control that that mind-body continuum was was there instantly. It was so much more embodied, um, the feeling of the diaphragm and the sensitivity to that breathing from doing what we do, taking a quick dump in and then as many syllables as you can on the exhale. Um, that had a profound just physiological Yeah, bowing also has a way of bringing your mind into your body. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, uh, often when people first come to the ceremonial side of Buddhism, it just looks like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. But actually, every single thing has a purpose. Mm-hmm. There's nothing extraneous. Uh, even in the most elaborate ceremonies, there's nothing extraneous. It all has, there's some meaning or some purpose or some value for it being there. Um, so it's it's important not to come to uh, 
Um, so as we're bringing Buddhism to the West, it's important not to come at it with this kind of butcher mentality of like, I don't like this, I'm going to throw it out. I don't like right. that, I'm going to throw it out. I don't so like this, throw it out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good point. What we prefer, you know, grafting onto this amazing rich tradition and then saying, well, I don't like that part of it. Yeah, no, that's a very typical approach, I think, in the West. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I think it's... Um, I think it's good to always start with the assumption that there's something valuable mm -hmm. uh, and then we look for the value mm -hmm. uh, and usually you'll find it <laughs> and if you can't find it, talk to a senior teacher from any tradition really um, because once you get past a certain point in your practice then the line between tradition starts to blur um, that for example um in Tibetan Buddhism, which we don't have represented here today, but we often do, um, there's mantra practice, which is you know very short, shorter than some of the things we've been chanting together like this morning. But for example, you can take um, the Heart Sutra: Gate Gate Para Gate Para Sam Gate Bodhi Svaha can be a mantra. Namudai mm Bosa -hmm. um, is a mantra. And in Tibetan practice, many, many mantras are used. Om Mani Padme Hom is the most uh, known. <coughs> but what that word means is mind protection. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, when we sit down to meditate, the mind has a lot of ideas about everything. <laughs> And so you can sit and meditate and, and use some of what we chant in that way to bring the mind to one and using the breath to do that. And as Kerim is saying, when you're chanting, you're using your breath and you can chant silently as a way of really allowing the mind to come back to its, its original oneness. And that's a good practice to take with you whenever you're in situations of um, turmoil, uh, traumatic uh, events in your lives, as we all have had, to be able to turn to a mantra. And while you are going through and you know you're in this hospital and whatever is going on, and, and, you, can, and you can just say, It's a, it's a, you know, in one of the sutras, um, uh, Buddha talks about the latent defilement, that are some impurities that will come out of nothing. And sometimes when we do chanting, that helps us to purify the mm -hmm. mind and let go, even when we don't understand what those latent impurities are. So when you chant, and kinds of uh, eliminate it without uh, defining what it is or trying to really figure out what it is. Yeah, it's building new habits of mind. So rather than feeding our old habits of confusion and obsession and irritation, uh, we're building new habits, wholesome habits.
outside when meditating is like I, I feel like I start to see a circular kind of web and it seems to be like if I could see everywhere, like it mm. reaches out everywhere, connect, you know, the whole, the whole. <laughs> and um, it's almost like the nature, pieces of nature are rise up a little and it's like, and it, it's pretty readily available when I meditate outside, but inside I, you know, I never, that never ever happens. Um, when I have my eyes open looking at a point. Um, and I just wondered, does it, any, I no one I've ever talked to has experienced that and I wondered if anyone like that, I would think maybe in the forest tradition, like, or I just wondered, does that sound familiar to anyone? And, or, or what your experience of that is with Zen meditation, like a similar thing. Well, yeah, I'm going to ask you to speak about it from the Thai forest tradition, but I, but I did want to say that what you have experienced is um, actually the central understanding in Buddhism, which is Indra's net, which is that we are all in this amazing net, everything, the whole cosmos, wherever those strands cross in that circle, circular web that you spoke of, is um, a jewel. And each facet of each jewel is reflecting all the other jewels. And this is the mystical aspect of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And so Indra's net, of course, is not limited to being outside. But perhaps when you're sitting with your eyes focused on one point, you are in some way maybe limiting yourself. You can let the gaze soften and just be in that be in that one facet reflecting all others and feel the interconnectedness that is what we all experience in deep meditation that web that you spoke of mm -hmm. but certainly there must be some specific um, experiences of that in the Thai forest tradition um, yeah I mean definitely Ajahn Chah spoke a lot about observing nature as a way of starting to get some sense as to the fundamental reality of things. Um, and I would say that there is something a bit easier about it in natural environments. Um, but if we draw this sharp line between natural environments and man-made environments, uh, well, that's just another dividing line that we've drawn in our minds. Um, so it doesn't need to be there. So we want to let that line melt away as well. This is a natural environment that we're sitting in right now. Humans are a product of nature. Uh, so what we're sitting in, it's from one perspective, it's like it's like a termite nest or a beehive. Uh, might say, oh well, it's not as pretty as a beehive. It's like, well, we can think whatever we want, but still, this is just as much a part of the whole as everything else is. So one practice that you might try is go outside, meditate outside till you start to get that that feeling. Uh, of the, the interconnected unification of all things until that starts to really settle into the mind. Uh, and then slowly get up, try to keep it. Slowly walk inside, try to keep it. Sit down, try to keep it. And you might find that if you make a conscious effort to port that attitude inside, that you'll realize there's actually no separation. There's no distinct boundary line. 
so as long as we don't create a boundary line, there isn't one. So I know, I know the kind of experience you're talking about because I get it all the time. Um, but I get it whether I'm inside or outside. Because mm -hmm. uh, there's actually no difference. So you see it that way as, as I described it? Um, we would have to talk, we'd have to talk in more detail in private, but yeah, we can talk about it another time. I was only going to say that, um, there are lots of, uh, experiences that people have, eyes closed, eyes open, that start to, um, help you to focus more and to basically, um, bring your mind to, uh, you know, bring your mind to equal equanimity, and sometimes the images, I wasn't sure if you were saying that that happens with your eyes open in nature or your eyes closed, um, but either or, um, the, the, you're, it, it's like a way that your, your mental states uh, begin to, uh, things are, other things are starting to fall away and your, con your concentration is getting sharper, and so sometimes it's with images um, and, and or the thoughts start to shift into something more, even more focused, or when your eyes are closed, you will see like swirls or things that, you know, just your, your focus starts to just go on whatever that is. I mean, they, they, all these things have different names and stuff, but they're just all the ways that the mind is, you're, you are actually beginning to uh, come into a very deep state of concentration. The beginning stages. So I think we should probably say that uh, we need to move. But we'd like to offer a chance to see if you do together with us. Mm -hmm. It's sure. Um, with the level and all these, and we sing together. And the first is I. <coughs> then we repeat you. They, we, all. This is metta. Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. you can sing the first one. Okay. <clears throat> all beings are essentially pure <coughs> by nature, pure as in shunyata. Pure as in emptiness, I too am essentially pure by nature, pure as in shunyata, pure as in emptiness, you too are essentially pure. By nature, pure as in Shunyata, pure as in emptiness, they too are essentially pure by nature, pure as in Shunyata, pure as in Emptiness. We too are essentially pure 